Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. No, when it you're comes never to things short. <laughs> Go on. I'm five, You're five. Helping over. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. And you always pronounce them so well. Check it out. <laughs> five bucks buys an ad on social media, ten bucks covers our website for a month, and twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So there are like maybe a hundred people in this world that have a lapel pin. So we want to double that number. Seriously, right. 20 bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on light-bodied red wines, whatever they are. <laughs> like Gamay, you know, like a Cru Beaujolais, you know. Don't think it can give? Yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Oh. Okay, that was too many calls to action. So the main call to action is give us money, because that's obviously how you can help us. The other thing you can do is review us on iTunes, is that what you said? So if you don't feel like giving us money and you don't feel like spending precious time typing, what you can do is just click that share button when you see our post on Facebook and you could like our page, actually. If you like our page, that helps us get to more people because Facebook is evil and it basically helps us see your friends. Most of all, <laughs> keep listening to America's Talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. And retweet because Toby loves that. <laughs> Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about opera, period. Here in the Lakeside Studio, we are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined tonight by Matt Cummings, Ashley Hargrave, Tobias Wright, and Oliver Camacho. That's right, tonight is our Halloween spooktacular. Get ready for some ghoulish high notes from our menagerie of monstrous co-hosts as we battle it out to see who's got the spookiest opera to introduce our listeners to this year. But first, it's the return of Monday evening quarterback. Oliver's got opinions, y'all, and that is spooky. Plus, in the two-minute drill, we talk about ghosts and other opera-related things. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score or post on our Facebook page. There are many ways to do it. And now, without further ado... Oliver Camacho, how are you doing? We never tested my mic. Is it working? Oh, yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> we got our act together. That's, that's the real spookiness here. Um, how, about, uh, how about over you in there in Studio 2? We are doing well here in Studio 2. Oh, wow. Who, who is we, this? John F. Kennedy. <laughs> John F. Kennedy has come to the studio. That's, that's Toby's Halloween costume, yeah. <laughs> no, we have a pretty... I oh. that looked a lot like Jack Kennedy. We have a pretty full house today. Yeah, uh, we got a pretty full house, yeah. so we're kind of, we kind of squeezing are in here. We full house. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. Okay, I'm we, done. We've got, uh, we've got Tobias Wright is actually JFK. Uh, Ashley Hargrave, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing okay, but it is, it's not a great week to be a sports fan in Chicago. The oh, Bulls lost so their goal opener. The Bears got another field goal heartbreak, uh, and this time with oh, Pinero. No. And then the Hawks lost to the Hurricanes, and they did it all in one weekend. So it was enough to just let us down just enough before the president came to town on Monday. Oh, so sad. So tragic. Before their time, Matt Cummings, how are you doing on this fine, spooky episode of Opera Box Score? Oh, it's so good to be back, everyone. Uh, we, we, we missed you. I honestly had forgotten that you were still part of it. You've forgotten everything about wow. me. So. George Cedarquist hasn't been on the show for like months, so <laughs> we almost it's had just enough... been me in the in the in the chair just piloting us all into oblivion. It's great. We almost had enough people here to take a group photo, but not quite. We're getting oh, there. So yeah. close. We'll, we'll get there Maybe eventually. in the future. <laughs> <laughs> we have got to talk some opera. Here we go. Pass or fail. Here's Monday evening quarterback. All right. We've got an Emmy cue tonight. Oliver, take us away. So this isn't a proper opera, but it's something that I really want to talk about because uh, it demonstrates that it is possible to engage new audiences with a little bit of creative thinking. So a week ago, uh, on Tuesday, uh, Larry Brownlee, who is in the current cast of Lyric Opera's um, Barbara Seville, 
uh, hosted an event called Lawrence Brownlee and Friends. And so it was Larry Brownlee with bass baritone Solomon Howard, uh, soprano Whitney Morrison, and baritone Christopher Kennedy, Christopher Kenny. And they used the Civic... And Craig Terry on the piano. With Craig Terry on piano, thank you. They used the Civic Opera House uh, lobby, which is actually a very like intimidatingly large and you know bedazzled space with lots of marble and columns and red carpet. And it's one of those places where you feel like you're, it's too expensive for you. Um, <laughs> but uh, they made it somehow more intimate. They put a bunch of chairs in the middle of the lobby they uh, set up some bars for free beer and wine, and they set up some Ooh. a table for hors d'oeuvres, like little canapes and sweets, and there was even a coffee bar and a tea bar. So people were, like, mingling and eating sugar and salty little things, and uh, it was just a really nice atmosphere, and they had set up a little platform uh, as a, a stage with the grand piano on it, and Larry Brownlee came out and sang Amez Ami, and then, like, welcomed all of us, and uh, talked about why he wanted to do this event. And he was really explicit about it. He said, look, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, I'm black and I want to come to work and be able to look out into the audience and see people that look like me. Hmm. And all the artists who were engaged in it, except for Craig Terry, I think who's an honorary black, um, were African-American. And this guy, Solomon Howard, who is um, singing Vorm or Worm in Louisa Miller right now, uh, bass baritone is insane. He's like the best dressed man in any city he's in. He was he's gorgeous. <laughs> he's like six foot five and super handsome. And he sang Il Lacerato Spirito. And then the uh, program kind of moved into more of a pop direction. He sang Superstition, CB Wonder, mm-hmm. and he accompanied himself on percussion. Yeah, uh, Larry Brownlee also accompanied him as well. Yes. With at, the uh, tambourine. And Whitney Morrison sang um, Bici Darte. Then she sang... <laughs> Uh, people from was it from Funny Girl? Uh, yes, yeah. yes, it is. And Christopher Kenny sang um, Largo Factotum, which is like his calling card aria. And then he sang, "Oh, I have the whole list here." Anyway, the point being that they did opera, then they did like sort of like standard slash pop, and then they each sort of sang more of like a spiritual uh, or a gospel song. And Larry Brownlee's uh, selection uh, for that part of the program was a lullaby dedicated to his autistic son called hmm. um, Angels Watching Over Me. And that was the beginning of the program where everybody started to lose it. It was incredible. Larry Brownlee obviously is a Belcanta specialist and is flawless in Rossini. <laughs> and in general. Yeah. <laughs> but when he sings music like this, um, it it shows parts of his voice that you just can't show in Belcanto. Like, he took his voice to the edge and he vacillated between very intimate phrases and very powerful phrases and there were some moments where his tone went a little bit uh like ragged it's the best way it's like you know gravelly it was like you never hear texture like that coming out of his singing when he's singing bel canto because it's just not good technique but when he's singing music like that and he shows us that side it's so powerful and like there were so many people crying at that moment myself included mm-hmm. uh and then Solomon Howard sang Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and it was so good. He played the tambourine. It was a cappella, and he started with this tambourine rhythm that felt like chain gang. Like, it was very dissonant with the tune, and it didn't even feel in rhythm with the tune, and it just sounded like this noise that was very upsetting. And meanwhile, his booming and very crystal clear bass baritone singing the tune Halfway through the song, he changed it up. He made it more of like a gospel kind of fun feeling. But you could not forget the way it sounded when he was playing like that chain gang rhythm. And it was really, really, I mean, it showed us like the progress of how, you know, songs like this, how they started and where they ended up. Uh, and it was it was sort of harrowing. I, can I chime in? Please, please. Because I don't, I don't know if it was clear or not. Oliver and I, uh, again, in our new dating life, I was there with him. Um <laughs> I think when you were talking about what sounded different about uh, Larry Brownlee singing certain repertoire mm-hmm. differently than, you know, maybe Bel Canto, um, is that sometimes we forget that opera singers are still just singers. Mm-hmm. And it was a chance, and I thought this is what was so welcoming about the program, to, uh, you know, the walls of opera are so high and were built by people mm-hmm. with that intent um, to keep certain people away. And to create a facade that was uh, perhaps somewhat unwelcoming 
even if that wasn't true. And I think being an opera singer, um, there's a certain aspect of that that strips you of the rest of identity of who you might be. And when Larry Brownlee sang Angels Walk- Watch- Watching Over Me, um, that wasn't him. It wasn't ragged, in my opinion. It was just singing. Um, and that was truly... But it was some, raw. It was... Well, right. It was It was raw because that was someone just singing because that's the most joyful and deep expression I think that somebody can have um, is to say, you know what? I, there's no other emotion to encapsulate how I feel or what I want to share other than singing. And that's why I thought that was so beautiful. And I thought the program as a whole allowed each singer to have moments of success in that regard. And then just to close, Whitney Morrison brought the house, literally brought the house down singing uh, a mashup of two gospel songs, uh, His Eyes on the Sparrow and My Tribute. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, African-Americans in the audience. I would say it was like maybe 75%. And uh, this is music that spoke to a lot of them. It felt like we were going to church, to, to borrow a phrase that we hear a lot. Um, but the audience went crazy. You know, I want to say monkey and poop. They did, they went monkey poop, but you know, I I can't Gross. say. What, well, they're not. Those are not technically monkeys. <laughs> if we're, if okay. We're really get. Uh, well, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, and it was just incredible because, you know, these are people that might have been. It might have been their first time in the opera house. I mean, he asked. He like did an informal poll. Like, how many people are here for the first time? And people raised their hands. You know, he said, "Go inside, go inside the auditorium. You know, go look and see what it's like in there. You know, we're on that stage." These, this is the talent that you would hear if you came to the opera. And then after the performance was over, like they hung out in the lobby and you got to meet them and talk to them and everybody stuck around and there was like free wine. Like, why wouldn't you stick around? You know, it was such a great event and it really is a easy way for any opera house to engage a specific audience. You just, you know, think of a creative way to get these people together. They're all there anyway. You know, it's not like they're singing every single day once they're in a production, you know. Uh, figure out on the calendar when people have time for a concert like that. Put together a very accessible program and think creatively about your space. I mean, Lyric Opera is notoriously a pretty hostile space. Like once, <laughs> once the show is over, there's really nothing for you to do. But uh, there was really, I congratulate them for, for this type of event. It's exactly what we need uh, to get new people in the Opera House. Well, that's, I think, a great sort of heartwarming introduction, which means I think it's time to get Spooky! that means that means Bach has walked in here and told us that uh, it's time to start getting spooky box ghost I should say because that's the real spookiness right there so without further ado Matt what are you bringing to the table this fine Halloween season my spooktacular offering is <laughs> a scene from uh, Richard Strauss's Electra which Ooh. to me is like the uh, the crazy boat ride from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory of operas. Um, it's it's under two hours long. It's nonstop action from beginning to end. And it is just completely wild. So this comes from uh, about half an hour into the opera. When uh, Electra's mother comes out and uh, is threatening her with the, with the procession. And they end up just mock. They basically just ha- end up mocking each other and having a, a string of insults. <laughs> There's a little bit more sympathetic content that happens there, but but not a lot. So, uh, the her mother Clytemnestra says that she cannot sleep because she's racked by guilt from having killed her husband, and it turns out that Electra claims to know exactly what will what will cure this inte- what what will cure this kind of nervousness the the these obsessions that she's having and the answer is to slit her own throat in a in a very normal <laughs> and loving you know, daughter thing don't today. don't you just love it when you're just so you're, you're this opening scene up is really influenced by uh, the horror a- elements of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it draws a lot on uh, what was called grand guignol, which literally translates to big puppet. And uh, because it's based on a naturalistic horror puppet show that was all the rage in Paris. Go on. 
on. Uh, <laughs> it, which, you know, sounds wild, but it's Electra, so why not draw on that as well? And mm-hmm. puppets are scary. So, so that's... Weston, why don't we hear a little <laughs> clip of this? Uh, this is from a legendary performance of Electra from the Wiener Staatsopera with uh, Birgit Nilsson in the role of Electra, and you can hear a little bit of Regina Resnick as Clytemnestra as well. All right, here we go. Matt, that's pretty spooky. I mean, even the triumphant part of that right there like, is very short-lived because soon all the flutes start. I'm not scared. You're so brave, Toby. That Toby's the one sort of reassuring us as we get through this spooky segment. Everything's okay. Anything else to tell us about Electra? Why do you think that this should be included in the pantheon of Halloween operas? Electra is just like maybe the best opera that there is because it is just wild and crazy people screaming at each other for two hours. But in a way that is, it's so visceral. That like you when you're sitting in the audience of Electra, you feel the tension in your bones from start to finish. Absolutely, even in the parts that sound happy and are just like a waltz, uh, because they're contrasted with such brutality and such horror and just blood pouring out of castles. <laughs> yeah. They don't really feel that triumphant. Strauss is the master of just a terrifying waltz. That is for sure. All right, let's get to, uh, some uh, something from uh, our next contender, Ashley. What do you got for us? I have. Not just one spooky opera, but two spooky operas Ooh. that share the same character. Um, I want today to look at the character of Madeline in Follow the House of Usher. Uh, there's two different opera examples we're going to talk about, one from the beginning and one at the end of the 20th century. Um, so a bunch of folks have written a lot of things on the Follow the House of Usher, the short story by Edgar Allan Poe. I'm going to spoil this for you if you have not read a short story from 1839. Um, <laughs> a dude uh, may or may not have buried his twin sister alive in an already haunted house. She might come back to freak people out. Uh, so Poe hints at this much, but he really doesn't actually state much of this. You know, at, depending on how this is, is put together in stage, it's, is the story real? Is it a hallucination? What is the real relationship between the narrator and Roderick and Madeline? Has she been buried alive? Or is it actually a demon from hell who takes such a spectacular revenge at the end? Incest and homosexuality and murder and supernatural all hang in the air, but again... Such things may only exist in the imagination of the audience. So we've got two 20th century composers that go and revisit this story. Um, the first one is our buddy Debussy. Uh, so he has an uh. Usher adaptation. Uh, I've got to tell you, every time I say Usher, I keep thinking of the R&B singer Usher. And there's, there's just a lot of music going through my head right now. So I just want to, I want all of you on this journey with me. 
JFK, is that you singing Usher? <laughs> that was me singing Usher. <laughs> Thank you, my dear. All right, so uh, so the last time that JBC worked on this was in 1917. He never actually completed it. He passed away before he was able to finish it. Um, but there was a musicologist, Robert Orledge, who worked to reconstruct this piece and the other Edgar Allan Poe opera that JBC worked on, Devil in the Belfry. Um, he continued to work on these. Uh, the French version is La Chute de l'Amazon Chez until right before his death, and he was very sad that he wasn't able to complete the compositions. He was actually under contract at the Met for both shows to be done together uh, in consecutively really? on the same evening. So, you know, the, the the downer that is the fall of the House of Usher would serve as a counterweight to the, the upbeat story of Devil in the Belfry. Um, the <laughs> operas in their complete form, as reconstructed by Orlidge, they've never actually been heard in the context intended by the composer until recently. Um, so this production, featuring the Gregor Symphony Orchestra, is therefore a world premiere. We're going to hear that in just a second. Um, so according to Debussy's wishes, uh, these two operas are being performed uh, together uh, just as they would have been at the Metropolitan Opera in this juxtaposition. Uh, Santa, uh, sorry, San Francisco actually goes on to stage Debussy's Usher uh, in its 15-16 season. Uh, so what we're going to hear, Weston, uh, is a 2016 recording from the Göttinger Symphony with Lin Lin Fan as Madeleine in the opening scenes. Uh, you're going to hear it's, it's very Debussy, it's very French, it's very pretty but it is spooky. Take it away. I think that House of Usher is about to fall down there, Ashley. Say that one more time. <laughs> I think the, the House of Usher is about to fall down. Actually, no, not for another like hour or so. That's oh, actually oh, at the beginning goodness. of the JBC <laughs> opera. All right, what else do you want to tell us, Ashley? Well, you know, in addition to JBC's version of Follow the House of Usher, we also have our buddy Philip Glass. So Philip Glass put together a production of this in 1988. Uh, this premiered with the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, it moved in 1989 to New York City, and candidly, not a whole lot else was done with it until the 21st century, per uh, Amer Opera America's listing and my own uh, understanding of this piece. Hmm. Uh, so the music is done by Philip Glass. The libretto was done with author Arthur Yorings, who also worked with Philip Glass on the Juniper Tree. This one is more uh, of a full opera. You know, Debussy's piece was never fully completed. It's only about an hour or so's worth of music. This one is a full opera. It's two acts. It's one hour and 30 minutes. The last two decades have seen this production of the Philip Glass piece uh, in places like Nashville, Long Beach Opera, Opera Cleveland, Wolf Trap, uh, and actually here in our hometown at Chicago Opera Theater. I, you I saw, saw that, that production. Yeah, I was like, what? A, what it was pretty amazing. It's it's really it's really an amazing piece. It's very Philip Glass. So if you're into Philip Glass, you're gonna like it. Oh, if you're I am. not into Philip Glass, you might not like I it. I actually much. am not usually into Philip Glass, Go but on, I tell loved me about the Fall of the House of Usher nice. because it 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 felt like this crazy meditation 
that you were just put into this state of not really know in in a way, and he used that dramatically in a way that doesn't always come across to me in Philip Glass's works, yeah. uh, because you were you were just kind of lulled into this sense of not knowing what was going on ever with both the music, and then that just added to the ambiguity of the story. Right, right, and even if you know the if you know the short story, you know depending on how this is staged in terms of its production, the story can be told in a number of different ways. They can be much mo- more overt in what happens. What is the fate of the twin sister? Is she alive? Is she gone? Uh, does she come back to haunt us? Is it somebody else? So there's a lot that can be done in terms of storytelling with the staging. Um, so one of the things that we're going to hear here is from uh, from Wolf Trap, actually. So Wolf Trap did a production to celebrate Philip Glass's 80th birthday. Then they recorded it, and it's going to actually be released uh, around now, I believe. Uh, I think it actually came out uh, a week or two ago. I actually, I actually bought it. Nice, uh, nice, nice, nice. I bought it already. Uh, yes, fabulous. So what we're going to listen to right now is Act 2, Scene 4. Uh, so this is at the very end of the opera. This is at the height of Madeline's haunting. Uh, you know, this is Wolf Trap with Inscape Chamber Orchestra. Jonas Hacker is Roderick. Ben Edquist, I believe we hear him for a moment, is William. And Madison Leonard. Friend of the show. Yes, as Madeline Usher. Uh, it is very glass. There's going to be a lot of repeats, but the percussive bangs are absolutely the sister banging on the door as she's moaning and haunting the house. And I am so here for it. Let's hear it, Weston. spooky stuff spooky (laughs) so those are two different sides of Edgar Allan Poe's operatic adaptations of the fall of the House of Usher and before we get any angry tweets or emails yes I do know please please do send us angry tweets and emails (laughs) send them to Toby any engagement I do know um, that there is actually a third uh, Usher opera and it's from Peter Hamill of the progressive rock band Vandergraaf Generator Uh, it is it is intense it is epic there's a lot of flute we will save that for a crossover episode I stand Edgar Allan Poe operas. Oh, don't I we st- all? <laughs> I stand that Eddie Poe. I stand him. <laughs> all right, we're going to continue with the spooktacular, but we got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Halloween treats on WNUR 89.3 HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by visitphilly.com. Looking for a deal when you visit Philadelphia? The Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package has great perks that make it easy to come and explore the city of brotherly love. Go on. (laughs) Book the Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package for a fall getaway and get overnight accommodations as well as free hotel parking and awesome seasonal perks worth hundreds of dollars. Free parking, you say. Tell me (laughs) Well... Um, you that's that's your hundreds of dollars right there because like mm-hmm. to park in Philadelphia it's is literally hundreds deeply of dollars. expensive. Yes. <laughs> Start your adventure with free tickets to the National Constitution Center. Oh my gosh, I know where I'm going first. Uh, Toby, did you go to the National Constitution Center? I did. Okay, did and you... I would recommend it. Yeah, it was beautiful. Did you I went to like every single thing that Visit Philly told oh, me to go to. Thank you, Arturo. Did you thank go to Reading Market? I don't know what that is. The, the, I drove by it. The indoor market with all the food. Fo- I the don't foods. need a market. I can get uh, food everywhere. And the Museum of the American Revolution. The rest is just steps away. The Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package includes a restaurant card that gives you $25 towards select restaurants in Iron Chef Jose Garces' restaurant group, The Garces Group. 
Plus, you can ride the Flash with a PH Flash Bus for an easy way to get to historic attractions and cultural institutions anytime for free. That's fantastic, also with a PH. For more details, go to visitphilly.com and find the Visit Philly Overnight Hotel Package on the Plan Your Trip tab. Just click, show up, and wander. Do you have nothing else to say about Philadelphia? Oh, I thought it was great. I thought we were wrapping it up. I love Philadelphia. Wait, I did. I, well, I might I use this and call there. Arturo. Really? Tell us about your Phil- Did you use the flash bus with the PH? I didn't use the PH flash bus because I was there uh, for work for a place that doesn't start with a PH. But, um, but did you have PH fun? I had so much PH fun. Um, it was really great. That yeah, getting in and out of the airport was super easy. Um, it's I so had a, cute that city, isn't I it? I had a hotel right downtown. Reading Market is amazing. You can spend all your time there. Um, I was mostly with biomedical engineers, but when I I wasn't. I was eating cheesesteaks. I was mostly with Oliver, so... You know, I ran out of clothes. I brought, like, six outfits for a (laughs) three-day trip, and I wore every single outfit. So I went to the H&M in that square, and I bought another top. Did you get some fashion? Some PH fashion? (laughs) Yes, I did. Look at all of these things we can talk about and not name the Liberty Bell. (laughs) (laughs) They also have that pizza. It was called Aliche, where you get the pizza by the weight, and they have, like, ten different types of pizza. That was a great little... uh, And they cut them into squares. Aperitif. And there was Mm. that cafe that we went to your friend works at, or your friend's friend works at, that was adorable. It was like in an alley. Oh, that was nice. And it was very trans And we also went to that yeah. very nice restaurant. Yes. Uh, Ver- in, Vernick. In the- Vernick. Oh my Can God. we say Vernick. that? Yeah, why not? Oh my gosh. Yeah, visitphilly.com. Visitphilly.com. And a bad. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. That is a long list and almost entirely accurate. We're just missing George. Almost everybody's here. We are stuffing everyone. We got all the microphones filled up. We got all the headphone jacks move, uh, filled up. We're we're making it well, work. That's, that's George the secret. hasn't been seen around here for 30 years. <laughs> that's the secret reveal of tonight's spooktacular. We <laughs> all right. I believe it's my turn, everybody. Yay. Yay. So uh, I, I dug around in my uh, obscure uh, opera hat and I pulled out. Shocker. Uh, <laughs> 1995's Historia von D. Johann Fausten uh, by everyone's favorite composer, I'm sure, Alfred Schnitka. Everyone's favorite version of Faust. Oh, it's so true. It's totally a Schnitka head over here. Um, Schnitka Stan, if you will. I love I love this opera so much. Uh, however, there's some issues. Much like uh, uh, Ashley's WC um, example, this has had a uh, an interesting and troubled history in terms of performance. Um, so the so sort of elephant in the room is the fact that the act, th- the pretty much the entire act three of the opera was actually written uh, 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 over 10 years prior, uh, in 1983, as part of a standalone cantata uh, ca- known as the Faust Cantata, or Zeit Nüchtern und Wachet, um, which, is, uh, which is very much in the style of Alfred Schnittke at the time. And if you don't know Schnittke, um, look him up. You'll, you'll love him probably, unless you're Oliver. What does that uh, title translate to, Wes? Oh, that, that literally means be sober and watch. <laughs> so, Ooh, no thanks. So no drinking as you're as you're uh, <laughs> as you're re- researching Schnitka. Um, this is um, but obviously this this is a, a version of Faust that is not based on the Goethe poem. It's not based on even the Christopher Marlowe. This is actually based on um, the uh, original uh, source of the uh, Faust uh, legend, the original written source, I should say, because obviously the folk lore uh, predates it. So this is actually a, a morality pamphlet that was passed around with these stories of look at this guy he he lived pretty good when he sold his soul to the devil and now he's dead. So it's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of moralizing in it. Um, I mean. That, that tracks. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and now he's dead. Um, so uh, the third act, as I said, is basically um, uh, is basically just this previously written cantata. There are a few different recordings of it that are actually pretty good. Um, um, but uh, the main issue is that there is no actual complete recording. And there's been, to my knowledge, uh, there has been no fully complete performance of the uh, full opera. The reason for that is because uh, Schnitka was in very poor health towards the end of his life. And he uh, he died died a couple years after the premiere of this opera, but he'd already had a couple of strokes um, at the time that the premiere was being put together, and the conductor in charge, Gerd Albrecht, uh, enemy of the show, I'm just kidding, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've got a list, and Albrecht the, is on it. He's right there. Um, he, uh, he was in charge of basically making the, uh, the, the score 
playable and performable. And in order to do that, he made huge, huge cuts, rearranged large portions of the story, um, and uh, generally uh, sucked kind of a lot of the... uh, the impression is we don't actually know because again no one's recorded this piece fully uh, or performed it fully it 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 got out a lot of that uh good good meaty schnitka uh juice um for want of a better word uh <laughs> and uh it's juice <laughs> Um, and and it, it's a real tragedy because it flopped at its premiere. And uh, part of the reason is because it was this hugely cut version. And another part of the reason was because the first two acts of the opera, which were written after the third act, um, were in Schnitka's uh, uh, post-stroke style, which is a much more pessimistic, a lot less fun, uh, a lot less polystylistic, uh, and that it just didn't go over well. I, I think sh- this opera is well overdue for a revival. Uh, and if anyone out there, call me, and I will uh, give you five bucks to make it happen, because that's all you I can spare. You will literally walk to Alabama. I will Five whole it. dollars. <laughs> but it's such, a, it's such a cool opera, the parts that, uh, that exist. And I'm going to play uh, sort of the, the easy one out of the hat. Uh, this is the famous tango uh, from the opera. Um, and this actually has been recorded multiple times as part of the cantata, and I'm cheating a little bit because I'm using one of those recordings. Uh, this is the uh, USSR Ministry of Culture's recording, so it's actually in Russian translation, which sort of removes a lot of the rhythmic qualities of the original German, and it's uh, a lot of effect over technique sort of things, but I really think it brings the sort of anarchic spirit of the opera to life. This is the point where the devil is standing on stage in front of a microphone, singing about how uh, the time has come for Faust to uh, go to hell, uh, literally, and he's uh, and she <laughs> they're describing in graphic graphic detail about how he's being ripped apart and his brains are splattered on the walls. It's great. It's so Halloween. <laughs> Let's take a listen. <laughs> Ain't that a spooky tango? So if you're the type of person that listens to Opera Box Score as you're taking a bath to relax. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about today's episode, everybody. <laughs> I gotta tell you though, I liked that, Weston. I, I love this piece I, so much. That was amazing. I don't know if you saw me. I was actually dancing over here. It is a crime confirm. that yes. this full opera has not been produced or recorded. A crime. And that's why Gerd Albrecht is an enemy. It just, <laughs> it just needs an Ema Sumac just to <laughs> sail over all of that stuff. All right. All right. It's Oliver's turn. What okay. have you got for well, us, this Oliver? This is a very timely topic because I, I teach actually on Halloween and I wanted to play Ooh. some spooky things for my kids. And I'm definitely going to be playing this selection, which 
which to me, I maybe I don't understand the assignment, but I think is one of the <laughs> one of the scariest things in opera, which is the finale to Dialogues of the Carmelites. Ooh, Religious good choice. Notoriously spooky. Absolutely yeah. scary. Well, that it also is beautiful, but the sound of the guillotine is harrowing. It's horrifying, and just you know, quick spoiler alert. Uh, this is the true story of the Carmelite nuns who were kind of swept up in the reign of terror during the French Revolution. Yeah, the religion is secularism. Yes, and they, you know, they they were put in prison, and then their hair was shorn, and they were trotted out uh, to Paris to like the square, and they were murdered one by one on the guillotine as they sang um, the. Actually, they sang the Laudati Dominum, but in the opera they sing the Salve Regina, mm. and Poulenc was so good at. It's um, awesome. At, at motets. And so this is like just what a Poulenc motet would sound like, except one voice disappears every, you know, 30 seconds mm-hmm. until you're left with one voice. And it's so <laughs> horrifying. We're going to hear a performance from uh, from Paris with uh, Patricia Petitbon as uh, Blanche and Sabine Devieille as Constance. Pretty spooky oh, stuff. It's so horrifying. That last bit where Constance thinks she's the last one and then Blanche comes out of nowhere to join her and follow her as the last person. Just the, yeah. the slide of that guillotine. It, it's, it, it really does put, you know, uh, 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 goosebumps on the back of my neck. It's mm. every time. All right. Do we got time for one more, but we got like only like a little bit of time. Dude, we'll be super brief. Speed run well, version? you guys really got in depth with yours and mine, I was just like, huh. Halloween. <laughs> Let's talk about ghosts and witches. And so I, you know, and you know my tastes, and those are of the classics. And so Is I'm going to take Corelli a, in this clip. No, <laughs> I really was going to play Corelli, but it was kind of irrelevant to the actual reason. It's never that stopped it. you before. I'm glad you didn't. I, I, I would have owed. Uh, I would have owed my seatmate here twenty bucks if you had done that. So thank you. Did you guys that. think I was going to do that? I, I mean, I always do. I mean, I'm sure uh, our, our listeners would appreciate it with the ongoing drink if you, if, I mean, if you it, play Corelli it's in, game. It's in here. Um, and he's got a great recording singing uh, singing as well. Anyway, so the <laughs> clip that I'm going to play is is actually just from the very beginning of the opera. Um, and it's the witches um, gathered in the in the wood. And, you know, what I think is interesting about this is, like, they're actually pretty wicked. Um, some of the things that they, anyway, it's a haunting opera and it turned out to be like his first Shakespearean foray. And it's actually because it's truncated and it's not as expansive as some of his later operas. It, it kind of, it's a quick little thriller, which is nice with, with the witches seeing the ghosts. Anyways, uh, Macbeth, witches. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. 
More right after this. Is there a question about opera history that you want our knowledgeable and esteemed panel to answer? Or are you a famous-ass singer without a publicist and want us to interview you on the air? Are you a fancy lad or lass with too much disposable income who sees opera all over the world and you just saw something that was super cool and we want to know about it? Are you the founder of a storefront opera company and want us to give some love to your project? Did you just finish a young artist program and are dying to dish about how great or disappointing your experience was? Whoever you are, we want to hear from you because we are America's talk radio show about opera. Go period. America! Email us, yeah. at, <laughs> email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com or message us on Facebook. And while you're at it, like our Facebook page, for the love of God, won't you? Don't pay attention to all the bad stuff about Facebook right now. Ours is good. <laughs> Once again, we are here to engage with our audience and amplify the best things that are happening in our community. So write to us at operaboxscore at gmail or message us on Facebook. We do not accept paper snail mail. Sure we do. How, where are they going to send it? I don't know. They, should, they can just walk up by the street. Chicago. Yeah. Courtesy of <laughs> McGrath, Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. All right. All right, but seriously, if you are listening to this ad, we do want to hear from you. This is an interactive show. We listen to what our listeners say, and we take that feedback seriously. We want you to be a part of this we show. Because... content, for the love of God. <laughs> All right, but seriously. Uh, yeah, and if you don't have a publicist and you're uh, Tamara Wilson... Or Joyce Didonato, I'm sure she has a publicist. Oh, yeah. Joyce does. There's a reason. But if you don't like your publicist, there's a reason Joyce Didonato's yet to be on this Girl, show. I got you, Joyce. Call me. We will make Although this happen. Although we've had some publicists and their artists. Yeah, to we us. can't say who. We can't say who. It's all in the archives. Shh, 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 shh. It's all in the archives. Okay, but we want we want famous singers to feel like they didn't have to finagle to get on the show. Oh, and no. they, they need the opera, opera box score. We'll finagle you. And everybody who's been on Come opera on. box score has like won a major award. That's true. Actually, That's we have true. 100% <laughs> no, of upper no, box score. No, yes. we have a pretty good track record, though, yeah. of, like, getting people before either they blow up or, like, right before they receive, like, a milestone major award. Yeah, we got that girl Elena Villalone before Boom. she won the Boom! That winner! Cup. I know. And, and ja- you called it. I did. And Jakob Joseph Orlinski before he was hot. We got him when he was just, like, an awkward... I mean, teacher. I... <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that's what you were saying at the time, Oliver. <laughs> I, mean... I think there's a reason you got him on the show. End of ad. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Operaland over the past week. The Midwestern Ghost Society took a tour through the old Sandwich Opera House in Illinois, and they say they may have found some ghosts, said one resident who was tagging along. Quote, in the back row of the theater, I saw something walk right by. When it got past the pillar, I didn't see it anymore. Another phantasm apparently grabbed someone's leg. That's spooky stuff. The Richard, the Richard Tucker Award Gala along, uh, honoring Lizette Oropesa reportedly went off without a hitch yesterday, full of exciting performances from a number of big names in the opera world. I'm sure Oliver will give us the full rundown in just a moment. A recent article from Classic FM details the efforts of Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra's BSO Resound, an ensemble of differently abled musicians to apply the social model of disability to classical music. Essentially, the idea is that people are disabled by barriers in society, not by impairment or difference. And that's something the ensemble proves every day. We'll have a link to that article on our website. The New York Times has published a profile on soprano Julia Bullock, detailing her struggles to overcome various illnesses, addictions, and the ongoing societal expectations associated with being a black opera singer. Says Bullock, quote, I so don't want to use the performing arts as a therapy for myself because that's not how I feel it. But at the same time, I cannot deny when I look at all the great work that has been written, these individuals were pouring themselves, all of themselves, into their work. It was announced last week that the Chicago Opera Theater has been awarded a $500,000 grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The money will go to the company's Vanguard Emerging Opera Composer Residency Program. Portland Opera is getting a new general director. Sue Dixon, who has been with the company in several positions since 2014, will be taking the helm from Christopher Mataliano, who stepped down after 16 years in the position in July. Uh, in an interview with a German newspaper, Die Welt, mezzo-soprano Brigitte Fassbender detailed the seedy underbelly of womanizing and abuse of power in the world of classical music, including even more revelations about Placido Domingo and James Levine, as if we needed them. The conversation was in connection with her memoir, which was released in Germany earlier this month. 
Chilean soprano Eileen Jovito Romero uh, broke her country's silence curfew imposed under martial law by the government of Sebastian Piñera. Captured on a YouTube video which is going viral, Romero was, sings the song El Derecho de Vivir en Paz, The Right to Live in Peace, by Victor Jara, who himself was tortured and killed in the Pinochet uh, dictatorship. We'll take a listen to Romero's sung protest in just a moment. On the disabled list, baritone Leo Nucci has announced that he's retiring from the stage. Nucci is known particularly from, for his inter interpretation of Rigoletto, which he sang several times over a span of 46 years. And exit stage right, Austrian mezzo-soprano Erika Wien died earlier uh, this month at the age of 91. Born in 1928 in Vienna, she fled the Nazi occupation of her home city after the war. She returned to begin her career there before finding an artistic home at Opernhaus Zurich for over 15 years. Italian baritone Rolando Paneria, uh, Panerai, excuse me, who sang with such singers as Calas, Giuseppe Di Stefani, Rina Scotto, Beverly Sills, and Tito Giobi, has also died at the age of 95. Over his long career, he sang over 150 different roles, including Gianni Schicchi, which he performed until he was 87 years old. And on this day, October 28th, Donizetti, Donizetti's Roberto Devereux premiered in 1837, and Richard Strauss's final opera, Capriccio, premiered in 1942. Baritone Alan Titus was born this day in 1945, plus, just in time for Halloween t- 2017, just two years ago, Victoria Borisova Olas premiered her operatic version of Dracula in Stockholm. And that is your two-minute drill. That's from the uh, viral video. Uh, uh, You only heard the audio there, but it's really worth looking at the actual video itself because it's just a shot of an empty street uh, with the curfew imposed. Uh, you see no one. Uh, you just hear the voice, and um, as and soon as man, she finishes, sounds good. <laughs> as yeah. soon as she finishes, just the it just erupts in this explosion of sound uh, with cheers. It's a really. Uh, I want to say haunting, but that might be too Halloweeny uh, sort of video. But it is. It's a. It's a. It's an amazing video, and I think a a really interesting way that um, opera, classical music, um, is still a relevant sort of tool of, of protest and uh, social relevance and active defiance. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, absolutely. it's a musical kick rocks to the, uh, to the administration. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of which Toby, you saw, you saw the presidential cavalcade or whatever. Oh man, I did see oh, the presidential goodness. motorcade today. And like my whole life, I've never been able to see a president. And I, you and guys still the, have This would be the one. Amen. I have no more, no more to say. That's essentially where I was going with all that. With that, like my whole life, I've, I've always thought it'd be super cool to like see the president. And like, obviously, you know, growing up in rural Kansas, nobody goes there. And then living in Chicago, for some reason, I've all, I always missed Obama. And then uh, today, I saw Trump. Yeah. Well. <laughs> well, you know, still though, the logis- be- still though, logistically speaking, it's awesome what they do to get the president of the United States in and around giant cities. That's expensive. Uh, you mispronounced winner of the Electoral College. That's what you're <laughs> I'm not even mad. I'm not even mad. So the Tucker Awards were yesterday. They honored uh, Lisette Oropresa, and she sang an aria from Tancredi. She sang uh, the aria Cabaletta finale, uh, mad scene from Ipuritani. And she really also taking it easy, I see. She also <laughs> sang the, Lu- the sextet right. from Lucia by herself. Um, Lucas Meacham came out and sang Larga Factotum. Christian Van Horn, last year's winner, sang the Te Deum from Tosca. Michael Fabiano sang uh, Lenski's aria from Gino Nyagin. Artur Uchinski, who blew me away uh, in Introvatore last year here, he sang... Two arias from Il Trovatore, Il Balen included. Uh, Stephen Costello sang uh, the flower song from Carmen. Uh, Angel Blue sang Depuis Le Jour. And Eileen Perez apparently brought the house down with mm. uh, Gil Belsonio di Doretta from La Rondine and the final duet from Thais with, um, with Lucas Meacham. And finally, Jamie Barton sang both of uh, the arias for, uh, what's her name? Eboli, well, uh, from, oh. from Don Carlo. The, the Veil Song and O Don Fatale, which I cannot wait for this thing to come out on PBS. It usually takes like, 
uh, several months for it to make it. I know, months. but this one sounds like it's going to be a good one. Uh, Can we just watch it together and hold each other and cry? Party. I just want to <laughs> open mouth cry for like two hours with you guys. Listeners, you're welcome to join and or listen to our live tweets. And <laughs> open mouth cry with us. <laughs> uh, what, what else uh, sort of stud, stood out in the news to you today? How about you, Matt? What have you got? I honestly forgot that Leonucci was still performing <laughs> because he has he has been one of the more important Verdi baritones for the last generation. Oh, absolutely. And before that performed for like another 20 years when there were when there was when there was a previous generation of Verdi baritones still performing as well. It's just insane how long his career has gone. Uh the and especially that he was able to um to to let go of Rigoletto at some point, I you know I, Rigoletto. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now speaking of Rigoletto, uh, should we hear a tiny bit of Cortigiani of our yes? Wait, do I get do I get to chime in at all? Yes. On anything? Yes. No. Or am I walked out of this segment too? <laughs> <laughs> well, you saw Trump, so we have to wash our eyes. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> that, no, that's no, go fair. ahead. Wait, wait, Cortigiani. Oh, I just want to talk about the Bournemouth Symphony. Uh, that that. Where they have the uh, the the social model of disability? Did we talk about this? No, not yet. Did anybody read this article? I you did. did. It's extraordinary. Do you want to do Rigoletto yeah. first, or do we want to talk? No, no, about talk the about it. Talk about it. Yeah. I just thought it was incredible. The quote that they had was: "The social model of disability differs from the traditional medical model, which looks at what is quote wrong with the person, not what the person needs." Explains Lisa Trago, head of BSO participant, which facilitates BSO change makers and resound. Uh, as someone who yeah, I thought this was one of the coolest things that I've ever heard. And one of the it's great things about the op or about the operation that they're that they're doing is they've sent out their business model to other symphonies around the order saying around the world saying this is attainable not just for us. This is attainable for you as well to to create opportunities for people who are able-minded um, and and haven't been given the facility to, to showcase their skills. I I'm really glad that we having that we have a chance to shine a spotlight on it too because so often arts organizations really fall short in the in the kind of advocacy that that they are capable of and this proves that that uh, that they're capable. And of. further, it said that that particular demographic. Um, people who did have disabilities that ticket sales for that de- demographic have gone up over 20 percent of course they absolutely have. Yeah. i mean it just duh why i mean why wouldn't we do this audiences expand when patrons look like you or when people on stage look like them yeah, yeah that's what L- larry brownlee Hashtag said larry brownlee you know? yeah. yeah yeah it's 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 a, it's a really Fine. neat uh program we'll we'll put the article on our website i'm sure uh, george will get it up there for us um but there's also a little video of the ensemble performing um and it's uh they're uh, performing a, a gift to be simple i believe uh and it's uh it's it, it's 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 beautiful you know it's uh and it it's really one of the, the these kinds of programs uh that i would love to become a standard uh, kind of ensemble uh, in uh, other places as well. Um, Congratulations to COT for that monies. Yeah. Maybe they have yeah. uh, they can start their emerging podcast program. <laughs> <laughs> and they I, give us an apartment too. And what I we... love Brigitte Fassbender, and I cannot wait for this book to be translated in, into English. She or maybe maybe punches. maybe that'll be the reason why I should finally learn how to read German. Well, like really <laughs> learn how to read it. You know? Speaking of Fassbender, um, I, I'm going to have to go ahead and play the lady card as the as the bio lady on the panel. I thought it was really interesting that this is a, you know, when we're talking about these these challenges that she had as a as a woman in classical music, uh, I thought it was really interesting the publication that she's giving this interview to because Die Welt is exactly where. Our our buddy Catherine Lewick had a little throwdown with a couple of <laughs> authors a few weeks ago. So mm. is this their way of saying, "Look, we're going to present another side of the female struggle, and you'll like us again, women, don't you? Won't you look at this nice lady?" Anyway, I just it it, it raised not one but two of my eyebrows. Both eyebrows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a two eyebrow razor. Do we have a moment to dip into the mailbag instead of listening to Cortigiani? Or? Yeah. Well, okay. we can. I think we can. Uh, what we'll do is we'll dip into the mailbag and then we'll, we'll take a listen to a Cortigiani. Okay. So we have a, a listener mailbag question, and unfortunately, because of the spooktacular, we had a lot of uh, extra stuff we had to get to. But uh, we'll we'll touch on it real quick, and then we'll do a more extensive segment probably next week on it. This is from Lillian. Uh, she uh, she says, "I'll be coming to ch- Chicago next year for Wagner's Ring Cycle. Yay!" Yay. Uh, how would you suggest I prepare? What should I read, listen to, or study? Would love your insight and recommendations. Ashley, you go first. Uh, well, first of all, Lillian, great name. Second of all, when you get here, welcome to Chicago. Tweet me, I'll show you around. Uh, 
I, I know you asked about reading, listening to, and or studying, but I want to prep you for like day of boots on the ground operation. So when it comes to seeing Wagner and seeing Wagner in Chicago, there's a couple of things I want you to do. I want you to fuel and I want you to hydrate, but not too much. You're going to bring <laughs> snacks and you're going to bring cab fare. So the first thing you're going to do, Lillian, get a pen, write this down. Are you ready? Here we go. First thing you're going to do is you're going to eat an early lunch before the show at French Market. Great thing about that place is it's a five minute walk from the theater. There's a lot of great options. And plus you're going to really get- every option literally it's every good, option yeah. and you're gonna get yourself a bon me at saigon sisters yes. to snack on during True. intermissions they'll wrap it up for you you can slam it in your purse you're good to go and after this is over with you are gonna be emotionally exhausted but you're gonna need some time and probably a cocktail to reflect so what you're gonna do <laughs> is you're gonna get in a cab and you're gonna ask that cab to take you to Bijan's bistro it's one of the only kitchens in the city that's really open post theater and it has one of the best scotch selections in the entire city so it is the place to go post theater matt your advice my advice is uh, you can com- come to terms now with the fact that not every single minute of the ring cycle is going to be interesting. Careful. Careful. This, Careful. Is Careful. this is lies. This is lies. Every single moment is perfect. People I love like it. Wesley I tried to hold him back. He, he's been listening to the ring ever since he was only six feet tall. But for us mere mortals, uh, it really helps me when I'm, when I'm going into uh, an undertaking like that to have a little bit of an, an idea of what the music sounds like so that I can grab onto the parts that I really like and give yourself to look forward to during the uh, quarter hours of not-so-good music, as Rossini famously described, Wagner's music. Uh, the Schulte Ring is the gold standard yep. uh, yes. for, for studio recording. It was uh, a historic undertaking in and of itself, and I even think there's a documentary about it that, that could be worth checking out if you're Ooh, interested in, like, Wagner lore. Uh, if if you prefer a live recording, I like that uh, the first full live recording is Klaus Tenstedt is the conductor uh, from the Bayreuth Festival with... Um, Astrid Varney, and I know I can remember off the top of my head, is the Brunhilde, but I'm sure that's available on Spotify as well. If you're looking for a video, and uh, especially if you're looking for like a moder- a more modern production, the entire Patrice Chereau ring from uh, from Bayreuth in the 70s with Pierre Boulez conducting was a pretty, f- uh, a pretty notable mm. uh, reimagining of the ring. And especially since lyrics is not a straight up traditional production as well, you might want to check out some Absolutely. ideas of how other directors and conductors have interpreted the piece. Yeah. I would also say uh, if you if you do want to like uh, uh, go all in and and buy the Schulte Ring on a CD, it does actually come with uh, a full CD uh, explaining all the various light motifs and such, which is very helpful. Uh, but I would say that my advice is to go right to the source, right to the uh, the uh, <laughs> the fountain of all knowledge about the Ring Cycle, the Anna Russell analysis. Uh, <laughs> from 1953. If you don't know who Anna Russell is, uh, she is a, a comedian uh, from uh, the, the 50s who did exclusively like classical music stuff. Uh, and uh, and her, her analysis, quote unquote, of the ring cycle is about 20 minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. I cannot recommend it enough. If you, if, anyone else who's listening it's if you stuff. already know the ring cycle and you don't know anna russell's analysis of it do it it's so good and it's actually a pretty decent introduction to the story i think uh yeah that's that's the advice we'll probably do a, a, mar- a larger segment to prepare for uh the ring cycle in upcoming shows but for now hopefully you can work with that because we gotta wrap it up and here we're pausing for a second he just wants to talk about the ring I just want to talk more. about the ring cycle. We'll cut this out, George. <laughs> Good call. Bad call. On Opera we'll Box School. <laughs> if, so, you're, if you're listening on the podcast version, you will have noticed nothing wrong, but I did just uh, put in a bunch of dead air there for you live people. But There's some nice praise for <laughs> Opera Southwest production of Alibaba out there. Congratulations to a friend of the show, Anthony Barese. Yeah. And I want to just shout out to uh, Lizette Oropresa for winning the Richard Tucker Award. And if you want to hear her sing, they're encoring the Manon, which was broadcast in HD on Saturday. The encore is on Wednesday. So the same day this podcast drops, drop your plans and go to the movie theater to hear her sing. Absolutely. Uh, my good call is going to be, we're going to, uh, if, if you're listening to the podcast version, uh, we're going to th- throw in the uh, Cortellano um, at the end of this particular... Cortigiani. 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 Yeah. Uh, we're going to throw that in at the end of this. And so stick around and take a listen to that if you're listening in the future. And Toby wants to tack on some Franco Corelli as well. But <laughs> Doesn't he always? <laughs> <We're> I, was, <laughs> I was trying. 
if, you, if, you, if you're taking a drink every time he mentions Corelli, just don't. You'll just go right to the hospital. Uh, it's not a good idea. Any other good calls? Great idea. My, good calls. my work time listening last week uh, included a new recording of Faust, uh, which was not Schnitka's, unfortunately. Oh, uh, but the Christophe Rousset version of the Gounod Faust. The that features, Jean. Yeah. yeah, with features Vernick Jean and uh, Benjamin Bernheim. Oh, my boyfriend. Reliving one of the best performances <laughs> that I witnessed in the last two yeah. years was his Faust at Lyric. All right, it's time to wrap it up. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somil Sangvi. Our announcer is Norm Woodell, who can be found at VoxerShorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Ashley Hardgrave, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, everybody, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera in a costume based on your favorite opera character. We're back on Monday, November 4th at 9 p.m. Central for more opera, more hot takes, and uh, hopefully fewer scares. Join us then. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sound Experiment. Oh!